I really love days when there are individual interviews because I'm so impressed. One after another, people come in, and I'm so impressed both with everybody's zeal and faith and determination and really ingenuity. Everybody is trying uh, one way or another to make things work for them. It's, it's really inspiring and touching. I remember, um, I remember once talking to uh, Sharon Salzberg, who's one of my teachers, and I was telling her about uh, my attempts to devise ways to keep myself interested in walking meditation throughout, say, a long walking period. And I'd say, I'd, I'd figured this out. I'm going to do it just this way. It was intriguing for me for a while and so interesting. And I did that. It was really, I was into it. And then it got old. So I did this. And then I, that was really interesting for a while. And I kept on doing that. And I was, really, it was a, like a game. I figured out how to really pay attention. I stopped saying lifting, moving, placing. And I started to say light, airy, hard, because that's really what it was. And that was so interesting. And I did that for a while. And then it got old. And then I did this. And then I did that. And she, everything I said, she said, that's great. That's great. That's great. I said, you know, I feel like I'm just tinkering. And she said, it's all tinkering. But she said, really, it, it's tinkering on behalf of discovering the path to peace. It's good tinkering. So I was thinking about that today, about the path to peace and the fact that we, each of us, in one way or another, are here because we somehow, even if this is the first retreat you've ever done, are here because we believe that peace is possible, that the third noble truth, that there is an end to suffering, not the suffering of the world at this moment, but the internal suffering of the mind. It's possible in this very life, in this very body, at this very time in the world, to have at least moments of peace and sometimes protracted periods of peace. We believe it, each of us, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Just for a minute, the mind starts, stops struggling. This is a poem by Yehuda Amichai. Israeli poet died a few years ago. I, may I rest in peace. I, who am still living, say, may I have peace in the rest of my life. I want peace right now while I'm still alive. I don't want to wait like that pious man who wished for one leg of the golden chair of paradise. I want a four-legged chair right here, a plain wooden chair. I want the rest of my peace now. I have lived out my life in wars of every kind, battles without and within, close combat face to face. The face is always my own, my lover face, my enemy face. Wars with old weapons, sticks and stones, blunt axe, words, dull dripping, ripping knife, love and hate. And wars with newfangled weapons, machine guns, missile war words, landmines exploding, love and hate. I don't want to fulfill my parents' prophecy that life is war. I want peace with all my body and all my soul. Rest me in peace. Love and hate, love and hate, wars without and within. 
I want the war within me to stop. I want the wars in the world to stop. And I want the wars in everybody's inside world to stop. And the world inside me is the only one, really, that I can work on. I can do all the things that I do in the cause of peace, but I won't do them as well unless I work on the cause of peace inside myself. I think about uh, how often we've spoken in the talks about the judgmental voice, the harsh voice, the critical voice in probably each of us, certainly in me. The voice that... um, demoralizes whether I voice it out to somebody else or I say it to myself. And I think about all the wars that have been fought uh, against heretics. And I think to myself, those voices in me, those are heretical voices. Those are the heretics that I would like to somehow expose to the light, that I would like to render helpless and effete. Those are the heretics that destroy me from within, tell me, in fact, the, the word heresy actually means half-truth. They tell me things that aren't true. They tell me that I'm not as good as I could be. I couldn't be better, ever. Neither could any of us. If we could, we would. Even when I am miserable, that's the best I can do. If I could unmiserable myself when I'm suffering, If I could stop, I would. When I'm not kind to other people, it's because I'm suffering. I wish I were kind. If I could be, I would be. When I make mistakes and hurt people, it's because I'm in pain. Those voices that say I'm not as good as I can be are really not true. They're not telling the truth in me or in you or in any of us. I I listen to everybody's stories all day, and I think we are so valiant, all of us. We keep on struggling and uh, hoping. And I think to myself, we're all in some way wounded. Sometimes you look around and you see people who are uh, in some way physically compromised. And I think to myself, we are all compromised and all wounded. And sometimes it shows on the outside so we don't remember that everybody is on the inside. The really good news, having started from there, is that I have such a faith in the healing power of just existence, of this organism. I think to myself, if we have the kind of illness that isn't a grievous illness that really needs medical attention. If we have a cold, we have a flu, even uh, some not potent virus, if we sprain our ankle, if we wait, it gets better. That the body takes care of itself. It really doesn't need much in the way of dramatic medical or surgical input. If we wait and take care of ourselves, The body has built into it this wonderful healing system. If our immune system isn't compromised, we get better if we wait. I have such a faith that the mind as well tends in the direction of wellness. That we are hurt, all of us, 
injured by our lives, by however the circumstances of our lives have been, both in pain because of what's happened to us and our individual psychological and emotional backgrounds, and also in pain because we haven't yet seen clearly that the truth is that everything is passing, that there's no one who owns the pain. We haven't seen the universal insights that are available for all of us, that really are the liberating insights, that things are the way they are according to conditions, and that really understanding that there's no one responsible. This is just life unfolding in its myriad amazing ways. And that participating and surrendering into the flow with kindness and compassion is really the way of living a life of happiness, that we haven't gotten that yet. Think about, um, I think it was Einstein who said that our um, sense that we are all separate from each other is an optical delusion. Uh, I like that a lot. Here he is a scientist and saying such really a wonderful spiritual truth that because we have these separate bodies and we perceive and take in the world through these separate sense organs, we perceive that there are separate owners of these bodies and owners of these sense organs and feel ourselves separate from each other and how different we would be if we knew that we were part of the ongoing and ever-changing cyclic flow of life in, the, in, in form. So we have that as a communal thing that we yet have to wake up to. And we have all of our private and personal things that we yet need to heal from. And I think the great and encouraging news is that the psyche and the soul, I think both tend, as the body does, in the direction of healing. And if we leave them alone and take good care of them and support them, it will do it all by itself. I think often that people coming here in these kind of wonderful circumstances, I think these are absolutely the most salubrious circumstances in the whole world for practice. There isn't a more beautiful retreat center that I know, more comfortable one where we have such a a group of staff so eager to look after you and take care of you and feed you well and make sure you get all the medical attention that you need. Sometimes I think that the teaching is completely extra, that we do it just for a little bit of an entertainment in the evening. That if we just left you all alone here and just took precepts and said, don't talk to each other, Sit, go for walks, sit, go for walks. Do some qigong during the day, that'd be okay. <laughs> that everybody's mind would heal. And, and, and that realizations, the same realizations, it's all impermanent, it's all passing. My suffering happens when my mind tightens around anything, and everything is arising and passing away according to causes and conditions, and it's all interdependent. We would all get it. Just by sitting around, it would come to us. <laughs> I think that. In the meantime, we're still teaching. <laughs> I think that the teachings maybe 
apart from the fact that I always love them. Um, incline the mind in the direction of that. That would be the best thing that we could do. That if we were to encourage you and say, whatever is happening to you, you are having exactly the retreat that you're meant to have. Actually, you're having exactly the retreat you're having. So (laughs) to assume that it's not the retreat that you're meant to have is just to make extra mind trouble. So say, okay, this is the retreat I'm having. Even it wasn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got. Which I think is, you know, in, in some ways synonymous with really profound understanding. The ability to be able to say, well, about anything in life, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And not struggle with it. If you can change it, that's wonderful. There are lots of things that we get that we don't want that we can't change. How to make the, how to allow the mind and the heart to assume the malleability that is its birthright to be able to say, okay, this is what I've got. It's not a heroic task. I think we're born to be able to do that. Some people seem quite naturally wise. They get that right away. You probably have met people in your life who are quite naturally and spontaneously wise. They say, what are you going to do? That's life. And they just don't fight with it. They, for myself, I'm really having to keep learning by watching myself get into a struggle and then get out of it and recognize again that struggling is is suffering. Sometimes we say struggling is the cause of suffering. Struggling or craving creates suffering. I think that struggling is suffering. And surrender is really liberation. Doesn't mean not having an active and intentional role in one's life. We do the best we can to make the kind of life that's most gratifying and most pleasurable to us. And then we say, this is what we've got. I think also what's wonderful to know is that in addition to the fact that the mind and the heart will do it by itself if we have the salubrious circumstances, is that there's a really lovely path of practice laid out by the Buddha as a guide for uh, how to incline the mind in the direction of rediscovering its natural malleability. It's inspiring to think, okay, I I get it. I actually sense that it's true that peace is possible. As a matter of fact, we each of us, I'm sure in our lives, have had moments, maybe a lot of moments, where we knew, wow, this is the moment that lets me know that my life could be otherwise. I, I, I won't tell you the details of this, but I dropped in for 10 minutes this afternoon at a meeting of people who are in the current teacher trainer pro- teacher training program. They'll be teachers in some years. They're already in their communities, many of them teachers. And the topic of discussion today was, when did you know that this is what you were going to do? When did you know that this path was your path and that this was... When was your confidence? When did you really say, not only this is it, but I'm going to do it. And this is a feasible path. And everybody had wonderful things to say. And my sense of it, uh, that's only there for a brief time, is that what was important 
is not a dramatic experience, but an absolute conviction in a certain moment that this was a feasible path and that peace was possible, that, me- that matched an inner intuition of wanting that peace and knowing that it was actually there, saying, yes, okay, I'm going to do it. So you may know, you probably know, that the Four Noble Truths, which we've talked about on and off in these days, are the fact that life is just by its own self suffering, difficult, unsatisfactory is really what dukkha means. Um, It means that even if you get it in the best shape, things change. doesn't mean it's all gloomy. Sometimes when I teach high school students or uh, freshman introduction to religion classes in college, I always feel in a rush to get up to the third noble truth piece as possible because I feel like if I start out with the first noble truth and have to talk about the impermanent nature of everything, including even the wonderful things in our life, the impermanent nature of everything, including ourselves and our lives. And that, in fact, that means that everything that we rely on for comfort is not not a satisfactory thing for permanent comfortable because nothing stays. So I feel like I have to rush, you see, through the first couple of noble truths, lest I portray Buddhism in a gloomy way. And that the second noble truth is the truth of, of suffering, that when we crave, when we insist, the insistence that things fulfill our personal need is the source of suffering, because the world is carrying on according to some infinite, complex system of cause and effect. What I want is one tiny, tiny, infinitesimal amount of what goes into the unfolding. And craving always is suffering. So then I get onto the third noble truth, finally, in a hurry, I rush up to it. And, and I really say the good news, that peace is possible in this very life. And then the fourth noble truth. Here's the path that the Buddha led, that the Buddha defined for arriving at that peace. So that's really what I was going to talk about tonight, talk about the way that that path does three things. It illuminates <clears throat> more and more the causes of suffering and the end of suffering. Wise understanding, really, to the degree that I begin to understand more and more and see more and more the ways in which I continue to be the cause of my own suffering, the more dedicated I am to paying attention. And sometimes I think we say lovely things about for the benefit of all beings, but in truth, uh, for myself at least, I have the strongest resonance with my own suffering and with my own desire for peace and happiness. And I think that my addressing that desire and really stopping the wars in me is my contribution to the well-being of all beings and peace. I think it's the path that dehabituates the mind from impulsive response. Three of the Eightfold Path parts have to do 
with how we behave in the world, how we act. And they, real, they really all call for a bit of restraint in moving forward and doing the next thing. So they dehabituate the mind from impulsive, unconscious action. It's really true that every single act that we do at all that's a volitional act, breathing is not a volitional act, but every single thing that we do is a volitional act is preceded by an intention. And if my intention is wholesome, and it comes from a place of friendliness and kindness and awakeness, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, it'll be a good action. It'll be a wholesome action that will cause happiness in the world and it'll cause happiness in me. And it won't flurry my mind and it won't disturb my heart. It won't pain me. And it won't pain anybody else. But I need to dehabituate myself from impulsively acting so that I have time to know what is the motivation in this action. It habituates the mind to wise choice. I really think that when I was thinking about habituating the mind to wise choice, wise balance, and to peace, I'm thinking about the last three path parts, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So you've probably all passed the prayer wheel coming up and down. Maybe turn the prayer wheel. And it says on the prayer wheel, wise understanding, wise intention, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. Sometimes in texts it's, it's uh, uh, rendered as right, right action. But we've, we've gotten in the habit of calling it wise. <clears throat> right has such a, a sense of um, oh, of um, right and wrong and uh, mistake. And uh, we all of us feel much more comfortable saying what we're hopeful about is replacing ignorance with wisdom so that there's no kind of moral overlay. Nobody wants to do actions or speech that cause pain. And sometimes we're able to be wise about it. So wise is a good word. I was thinking about wise understanding last night when uh, James was doing his talk and thinking about uh, the fact that everybody who starts even uh, a spiritual practice, this or any other spiritual practice that leads to the liberation of the heart, with that intention has already gotten the idea that liberation is possible, that suffering is present and that liberation is possible. They already had some hint of it, some understanding of it, and some real conviction that there must be a way out of it. I was impressed last night when uh, when James was talking and uh, talking about meeting Joseph at uh, Neropa and uh, having uh, perhaps a moment of not so sure about him, but very soon followed by wow and a conviction this person knows something seriously that I don't know followed by and I need to know it 
when that happens, when that has happened to me, I've really gotten attached to that person. Happened to me uh, when I took my first Hatha yoga class, which was in uh, 1968. A friend of mine called and said, you want to go to a yoga class? Can you get out from work? I was working at the Community Mental Health in Marin County. And a friend of mine said, can you take your lunch hour a little late? And there's a, um, there's a yoga class at the Jewish Community Center. And uh, so I did that. And I met her at the yoga class. And there was nothing the least bit cosmic or spiritual. It was in the ba- I was on the basketball court in the, JC- in the old JCC. And um, uh, people, I suppose, had maps. There was, must have been something that we were lying on. I think we brought towels to lie on. It was on the basketball court, I know that. And uh, uh, Maganya Baptiste, who became my yoga teacher for many years, and who I still think of as my yoga teacher, uh, had come from her from San Francisco, where she had a studio, and was teaching there on an old rickety record player with old records, scratchy, moody records. And... Uh, I did a, an hour of yoga practice, my first hour of yoga practice. I was, uh, oh, 32 years old. And um, I, I was changed by the end of the hour. And the truth is that the, the, the yoga was fine. I liked that very much. Nothing amazing happened to my body. I was really quite young. It was fine for my body to be able to do that. But I knew that Maganya knew something that I didn't know. She had something that I did not have. And whatever it is, was, I needed it. And so I, began, I became her student. Actually, I went to San Francisco. When that course ended, which was three or four more meetings, I started to drive to San Francisco to go to her studio, um, which was down on Powell Street, right up over the cable car tracks. And it was all very mystical and bells and gongs and curtains and incense. And at that point, I was not yet in the bells and gongs and curtains and incense. <laughs> and I, I got there and I thought, what am I doing here? Why am I here? But I had already driven in and parked and I was there. So I said, okay, I'll take the class. Meantime, I already was clued into the strange things that Maganya said, like, let your awareness be in your stomach. And how can my awareness be in my stomach? But nevertheless, if she said it, it was. And then she, she would say things like, and let it be surrounded by the color orange. And I think, well, that's really. But if she said it, then it was. And so I would spend the hour, I would do this whole practice. I would feel so excited and so exalted and then drive home come again two days later, I'd have to come again with bells and gongs and think, why am I here? Why am I here? And do the whole thing. And after a while, the why am I here went away. I became absolutely dedicated to being there. We did lots of meditations. Um, I ended up teaching yoga for about 15 years. uh, And did, in fact, until I began to teach this more. And I actually thought back on the yoga practice and I thought it was all those years of mindful movement that I really count as part of my mindfulness training. 
So I think a lot about Magana as being my first mindfulness teacher. But the reason I told you that story, I actually hadn't meant to tell you the whole story. I had just meant to tell you the story about the moment that I thought she knows something that I don't know. And she has something that I don't have, and I want it. My very close friend Mary, who has been my uh, spiritual buddy for 30, coming on 32 years now, um, uh, is a Dominican nun. I met her um, because I took a class from her uh, when I started work on, uh, when, 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 I, when I went back to graduate school. And uh, the class I took from her was World Religions. She was the first person to teach me Buddhism. I learned the Four Noble Truths from her. Um, what I really, uh, what really made us fast friends is early on we liked each other a lot and we were about the same age. And she said, uh, she was talking about Thomas Merton. And I said, who is he? And she said, who is he? <laughs> Have you not read Thomas Merton? Which I really count as a major piece of, a major wisdom transmission. Because I began then with the seven-story mountain, and I knew that there's such a thing as spiritual journeying, and that real people with real struggles could have an could make their way along a spiritual path, dedicated to the notion that somewhere there is that place that we call the peace of the spirit, or the peace of the God, of God, or the refuge of the loving heart. I think of it now, I, th I think of when we teach metta, and I talk about the refuge of living in the, in the, uh, in the Brahma-viharas, in the divine abodes of a completely loving and compassionate, enthusiastic, equanimous heart. And so Mary was my uh, beginner into that path by naming it for me. I think it's that, 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 that sense of there's something there that then really propels us, each of us, in our own way, in whatever our path is, into right aspiration, right intention. I want that. I'm going to get that. I just finished reading a book. It's just been published. It's called uh, Besides Still Waters. Uh, it'll be around in bookstores. Uh, it's an anthology. It's an anthology of 14 people seven Christians, seven Jews, writing about their experience with Buddhist practice, all of them. And it was very interesting, all of them very, very much grateful to their Buddhist practice, all of them very serious meditators and students of Buddhism. And um, I loved reading the 14 accounts, they're all different. But what's the same about all of them is a, a, an, a, an undercurrent of passion Every one of them was looking for something and determined to find it. In addition to the spiritual path that they already had, they were looking for something else. They were looking for everything they could find because they were committed to the idea that that peace that surpasseth understanding is to be had and we can find it. I think of all the different spiritual paths as being skillful means, lineages that provide companionship and community 
and skillful means for, disca- for finding that place within us that knows that place of peace. Wise action is that kind of wholesome action that I mentioned a little bit ago that comes from wholesome intention, that keeps one's own heart happy. It's so important to think about one's own heart being made unhappy by unwholesome actions. There's a, there's a lovely line in one of the Jataka tales. It's a, a children's story, a Buddhist children's story, about um, a man who falls into a pit in the forest and um, can't get out, and um, an ape comes along, a great ape. And the ape, you understand, is the Buddha in a prior incarnation, very kind ape who finds this man down there and wants to rescue him, but he's very heavy. So the ape goes up and down through the pit carrying heavier and heavier stones to acclimate his body to carry a big weight. And when he finally is sure he can do it, he goes back down in the pit, has this man get on his back and carries him up out of the pit. And he's completely exhausted. But so he says to the man, uh, I need to rest now. I'm really tired. You stay guard over me. I'll rest. And then when I wake up, I'll show you the way out of the forest because you're lost. He lies down and he sleeps. And the man starts to get hungry. He thinks to himself, I could kill this ape and eat it. And he picks up one of these great stones and he throws it at the ape's head and it hits him and he wakes up and he sees what's happened and big tears come out of his eyes and he says, you poor man, now you will never again be happy. I love that story. I think it's a great story. You won't be happy. We can't be happy if we do hurtful things. We don't mean to, even if we accidentally do bad things, we feel bad. It's a wonderful story, motivated by desire. We do some terrible things. That poor man, he was motivated by desire. I think we've all made mistakes in our life. I have made mistakes in my life motivated by desire. I didn't think about enough. When we took the precepts the first night, We really allied ourselves with um, a practice of considering, is what I'm about to do now in any of these ways consistent with my intention to behave with wholesome intent for my own happiness? It was important to me last night for James to mention that uh, Joseph had said, I think it was James last night, could have been Sally, about the importance of restraint, which is what right action requires, to see really the emptiness of desire, that we feel it so strongly. I took a vow a few years ago. I 
I gave a donation to a cause I support because I was solicited for that donation. And I thought it was a good cause. So I gave a donation that was fairly large. And it was a larger one that I would normally give without consulting my husband about it. But I did it. And uh, then on my way home, I thought about it. When I got home, I told him about it. And I said, you know what, I've decided as, uh, because I did that unilaterally, uh, I'm not going to buy flowers on Friday afternoon for a whole year. I like to buy flowers on Friday afternoon. It's one of the things that I do. I said, I'm not going to buy any fresh flowers on Friday afternoon for a whole year because I did that other thing. And he said, listen, you don't have to do that because, first of all, it's all right about the donation. And second of all, it's more than a year's worth of flowers. So, <laughs> so, um, so, but I did it anyway. I decided I was going to do it. Just So I took a vow, and every week for a year, I'd be shopping on Friday afternoon. And I have to go in the supermarket, and all the flowers are lying in wait for you right there. I have to pass them. And they look so wonderful. And every week I would think of, you see, maybe six months was enough of a vow. <laughs> These special friends are coming tonight. And these are beautiful. I should really be supporting the flower growers in Sonoma. <laughs> There's always a reason to buy the flowers. And I didn't do it. And the thing that was important to me is I didn't buy the flowers, but you feel like buying the flowers. And I'm halfway down the aisle, and I forgot about the flowers. I'm looking at something else. And the emptiness of that, because while you feel that pull, it's so strong. It's like, buy me, take me home. It's gone in a minute. <laughs> So then the year finished, and I could buy the flowers again. I thought, well, you know, I'm on a roll. I won't buy the flowers because I'm still learning. You see, every time I go, I go, oh, I want these flowers. I'm not doing it. And I see how empty lust is. Every week I get to see. So then I wasn't doing it, and I was really feeling good. See, I'm just doing it. Got over the flowers. And then I was teaching somewhere um, up in Canada some months later, and I told that whole story, just as I told it to you. And I said, you know, I still haven't done it. Someone said, don't you think you're a little attached to that? <laughs> so the next week I bought flowers. <laughs> but I learned. I always think about why right speech has its own path part, because it's a form of action. Why does it have its own place? And I think it's because we cause so much difficulty with speech that uh, it's so easy to say something that, people re- that another person remembers forever and ever and feels wounded by. I think it's completely wrong, that rubric about sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. I think we've all had broken, many of us have had broken bones. They heal and they don't hurt anymore. You don't even know which was it, this pinky or that pinky. You don't remember, but somebody said something bad in the seventh grade and you remember it now. Or in the kindergarten. Somebody said you don't sing well in the second grade, you didn't sing your whole life. Somebody told you you don't look good in a certain color, you never wore it again. Somebody told you something worse, I don't love you anymore. It's, words are terrible. They're so potent. I remember things that people, when I say to people, what's the longest time ago 
you can remember a, a critical remark in your life. For most people, it's their age minus five or six. People remember criticisms for years. They're ageless. I think because they frighten us so much and we kind of enshrine them in the memory. It's because they worry us. I am actually thinking a lot these days when I'm thinking about wise speech, about um, the speech of my heart being wise. So not only the speech out my mouth, but the speech of my heart. I'm trying really hard um, as a discipline. I'm not very good at it. That's why I'm teaching it all the time, especially in these difficult times in the world, to not be blaming. It'd be so easy to blame the world situation on this person or that person or this country or that cursed country or this ideology or that ideology. And I don't think it, I, I think there are certainly obvious people and ideologies and countries that we could say, that we could name as culprits and people would say, yes, yes. But I, I am really working hard at thinking that ignorance is the culprit and greed and hatred and delusion are the offspring of ignorance and really that it's always been this way in the world. This is not new trouble in the world. That greed, hatred, and delusion are still prevalent in the world because ignorance has not been conquered by wisdom. And I don't think it serves us. However much I may work for peace and actually support particular political candidates, which I am doing vigorously and vociferously and publicly, but I'm really trying not to hate in my heart. I don't think it's good for my mind, it's not good for my heart. Right livelihood is getting more and more interesting to think about these days. In the days of the Buddha, when it was as simple as not, not simple, but as clear as not making armaments, not soldiering, not killing for work, not having slaves. It's so complicated now, right livelihood. I used to think I knew the answer to it. You know, I, I, I actually recently got caught, caught, found myself caught in having made a judgment that turned out to be not true about livelihood. So easy to think about materialism. Uh, the last time, oh, oh actually, it's, it's more than a year ago now. I was in New York, and uh, uh, someone I met because she was in a class that I taught, who uh, works at the commodities exchange. She's a trader at the commodities exchange said, come and I'll show you what I do. Anyway, I went with her. And so she took me to the floor of the commodities exchange just before the exchange closed in the afternoon. And it's just like the movies. It's just like the movies. They're actually pits. They say people are in the pits are actually like pits with uh, <laughs> people, in, people in, in jackets that let you know that they are trading crude oil and those people are doing natural gas and these people are doing something else and shouting and waving their arms around, really papers flying all over the place. It's just like in the movies. And it gets more and more a crescendo as it's coming to the closing bell. It gets very exciting to watch it. And, and I was looking at it, and I was actually having some... First of all, I was thinking it was just like the movies. And then I was thinking also about, look at this, everybody... Um, what is it... Uh, Getting and spending, we lay waste our days. I'm beginning to think poetically and a little bit snobbishly about getting and spending. You know, here I am, elite, I'm not... Anyway, I'm thinking a somewhat disparaging thought on the whole thing. 
And so it finishes, and I watch this whole thing, and then afterwards, when we talked about it, uh, I brought up a little bit. She was explaining to me about how it works. And I brought up a little bit. I said, you know, I had a thought about it. She said, no, no. She said, this is actually very good. She said, because all of this trading and bidding, which is bidding against this and about the future and that, she said, it's what keeps the, it's what keeps the commodities at a, uh, at, a, at a level that makes them available for the whole world. Not explaining it as well as I could now, but there was some way in which she explained it to me in a way that I don't think was covering up for something that I had inferred in it that actually stabilizes the market in commodities. So I thought to myself, hmm, okay. Didn't know that, now I know it. But really to think about, when I think about right livelihood, uh, the, the phrase that comes to me is, um, I actually read it in Houston Smith yesterday, uh, the, dyer is, the dyer's hand is colored by the dye. It makes a difference to me, at least, what you work at and the kinds of people and ideas that you associate with. I like to think that the commodities exchange is for the good of the world. I know this person has very much a heart of good for the world. So I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to think that's true. We'll go on to right effort. For, for a while I used to think right effort meant making the right amount of effort. Wise effort means try as hard as you can. Actually it doesn't. There are four specific movements of the mind that make up wise effort. They are the efforts to notice in the mind the presence of unwholesome states and to put them out of the mind, to work to put them out of the mind, to put the attention on something else, to notice in the mind the non-arisen unwholesome states and keep them non-arisen. They're not there, you keep them out. They are there, you put them out. To notice about wholesome states in the mind. If they're not there, you cultivate them. If they are there, you keep them. It's a, it, it sounds, in a certain way, simplistic. I think it's actually such a wonderful idea. The idea that I could say, you know, this is not a wholesome mind state now. I'll just put my attention on something else. It's not denial. It's not repression. It's not suppression. It is freedom. It's a choice. I'll do something else. I, I, I was thinking the other day, that should be an instruction. Incline the mind in a different direction. Do something else. With, with clarity, with clear intention, know what you're doing, but do it. Sometimes it's hard. So I don't want to make it sound easier than that. There's some very difficult state in the mind. But if the intention is to clear the mind of an unwholesome state, you can't take the attention and put it something else, you say, okay, here's this unwholesome state. Which antidote can I use? I can't remember now. Which of those antidotes should I use? And if you think that to yourself, you could say, well, you know what I can do? I can just really try to concentrate now because I remember 
that concentration itself contains all the antidotes to all the hindrances. So even if I don't remember which does what for what, I will concentrate and I'll figure it'll get taken care of. I'd say to myself sometimes when I'm completely caught up in something, put this foot down like you never put it down before in your whole life. Just put this foot down and know what you're doing and do it with such deliberateness, deliberateness, poof, whatever is there is gone. You can just, as easily as that, you really have to do it. Put this foot down as if your life depended on it. I sometimes feel that way, that not my physical life depends on it, but the life of my heart, the life of my spirit. Just put that foot down. Why is mindfulness? It's really, we've been talking about mindfulness all week, the cultivation of that balance of mind that's able to non-reactively see what's happening. I'm very happy because I got an email from my daughter that is such a good grandchild story that I can tell you right now, and it just came. So She wrote me this wonderful story about... Um, um, this is my daughter who has uh, two children who are uh, six and three. She said, yesterday, at the end of the day, I sat down on the sofa, we we're going to read a book. I got us all settled on the sofa, reading a book. And then Harrison said, I'd like a banana. And Anna said, I want a snack too. So all right, I unsettled us. We went over to the table. I resettled them. I got snacks. Sitting down with the book, she said, I was sitting there. She said, I was tired. It was the end of the day. I accidentally hit a glass of milk, spilled all over the table, spilled on the book, spilled off the table, spilled into a box of art projects, all over, made a huge big mess. She said, I was tired. I, 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 she said, I just was tired. She said, I said, shoot. She said, Harrison said, Mom, here's Blue's Clues. Stop. Breathe. Think. <laughs> Do you know that there's a cartoon program on television, apparently, where this character named Blue is some sort of an animated cartoon. He has very wise, sage ideas. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I wrote him back. I said, Liz, this is great, because this is what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is stop. It means even imperceptible stop. We don't go around stopping all day long. But it means notice. That means stop. Notice what's happening. Breathe means let's have a certain amount of calm in the system and think what's really happening. It's a really beautiful description of every moment of mindfulness has a moment of recognition filled with enough calm, enough composure from the concentration practices that we've been doing to be able to attend with alertness to what's happening. That's a moment of mindfulness. Stop, breathe, think. See, I get to tell you a grandchild story, first thing. <laughs> and the last of the Eightfold Path is wise concentration. It's really the last in the path because I, I, it's, it's, that concentration is really fundamental to even to mindfulness. Concentration is fundamental to mindfulness being steady. It has in it all the hindrances, all the antidotes to all the hindrances. The factors of mindfulness are the, fa are the factors of aiming the mind, which 
when we can aim the mind precisely, aim the attention precisely, cuts through torpor, wakes it up. Concentration has the ability to sustain itself on an object. And the ability to sustain is the antidote to doubt. Concentration has a certain amount of rapture in it. It's the antidote to aversion. It has calm in it. It's the antidote to restlessness. It has one-pointedness in it, which is the antidote to lust. Lust is the mind looking around, oh, there's something good there, 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 there. One-pointedness, the lust falls away. So I don't have to remember the formula, which is good for that and which is good for that. If I put this foot down and this foot down and this one, take this breath, the next breath, the next breath, I'll just count on concentration developing and the antidotes to the hindrances, making the mind spacious. It's a lovely um, phrase that comes from uh, Tibetan practice, I think, most of all that all defilements are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. You don't have to work with the defilements, with the hindrances. They go away by themselves. So I think it's really good news that we're all here because there's something to be had and we know it. There's a path of instructions. There are techniques to work with. I am very heartened by the fact that whether I do the techniques or not, and I do do the techniques, I like to think that my heart and my mind are doing it by themselves just because it's the natural thing to do feel like I like to have an ally helping me. feel like I like to know that my heart's doing it and I'm just cooperating. So I'll end by reading you a poem by Wendell Berry. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me, like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. We'll just sit.
Thank you. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on May 22, 2003. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.